you you empathize a lot more and yeah. i think because both of mine were in that place and they were in special care and stuff sort of i can relate to it and i can sort of say to mums now i know how you feel and i, I get it This is a story about a pregnancy that doesn't end the way it should. About what happens when your baby is born too early to survive alone. It's about the parents, the babies, and the doctors who save them. It's about what happens when your life doesn't turn out quite the way you expected, and the untold story of what happens next. I'm Francesca Siegel. Welcome to Mothership. Coming into the world too early leaves you vulnerable, not just to all the obvious issues like breathing and feeding and staying warm. But premature babies are vulnerable to sensory overstimulation too. They should be in the muffled safety of the womb, and in hospital they can be assaulted by light and by sound, and upset by the uncomfortable and sometimes painful procedures that are necessary to save their lives. So if they can't have the womb, we now know that they should at least be cared for in a way that approximates the womb. Dark and quiet and calm all make a difference. And as much as possible, babies should be with the only familiar person they know. Even the tiniest baby knows her mother's voice and recognises her mother's scent. In a very real way, premature babies need their mums. They need their families. Inga Warren has devoted herself to family-centred care during an NHS career that spans 50 years. Inga created FINE, which stands for Family and Infant Neurodevelopmental Care. She has trained medics around the world to respond to the babies in front of them, to observe their behaviour as tiny people with opinions and personalities, to protect their sleep, to manage their pain and their stress, and to help their parents learn to do the same. She's co-author of the handbook, Caring for Your Baby on the Neonatal Unit, and is working on a vital second volume all about the next phase, Coming Home. Last year, Inga invited me to speak about mothership at a fine seminar, but I never actually made it after my entire family was struck down with norovirus. That was a pretty dark week in our house. But it turned out that it actually wasn't the first time we'd been in touch. When I was searching my inbox for Inga's email address to invite her on this podcast, I found a message I'd written to her on the 5th of October, 2015. Really? Three days <laughs> after the emergency arrival of my girls. Oh, really? I haven't told you this. <laughs> in it, I was reacting to a crisis in the only way I know how, reaching out frantically for material, longing for understanding and with it some sense of control and panic buying a copy of her book to be delivered as fast as possible. And I found a lovely reply from Inga saying, your book went in the post today. Huh. <laughs> I hadn't told you. No, I didn't know that. I suppose you didn't realise that until I sent you another copy that it was the, the same book, did you? It was, I just think I was in such a fog at that stage. Yeah. And I don't know what I was doing. I felt like I was sort of very controlled and being rational, but with hindsight, I just wasn't. No. really on the planet hmm. so anyway so thank you both for being here and for being so lovely in the throes of everything um i wanted to start really at the very beginning um can you tell us a little bit about what family-centered care is 
I'd rather um, think about it as infant and family-centred care rather than family-centred care because there is um, a lot of attention paid to the importance of families in the neonatal unit. But sometimes we get so carried away thinking about the family and the parents and the parents being there that the baby gets a little bit left out. And um, I think we have to hold on to that, that they're a unit and you don't separate them. And so we have to think not only about how parents care for their baby, but how the baby responds to that and how the baby tells them what they want and what they need. So for me, that's what it is. It's about building the relationship between the parent and the baby so they understand and trust each other very well. And that gives it's an onus on the professionals to make space for that and to help them to do that, to allow it. And fortunately, it's often the case of allowing as well as encouraging. But it's interesting what you say about not separating them, because, of course, you're talking about language again. But actually, the first thing that happens is that the mother and the baby are separated. Yes. And um, in different places, in different parts of the world, it's better or worse. I mean, there is a strong move towards avoiding that and there are studies going on at the moment where the baby goes straight onto mother's chest after birth even at 28 weeks and they try wow. not to separate them but and that's a big sort of step forward but that's something that's you know people are more and more looking at that and in Scandinavia there are many units where the parent has the bedroom right next to the babies so you know so it's a much more of a family unit in the hospital in this country we tend to think that we're doing rather well but actually when you dig a bit deeper you find that the separation isn't just that taking apart at the you know separating right at the beginning it happens in subtle ways throughout the course the way people are asked to leave for handovers, nursing handovers. Absolutely. Yeah. When actually, who is the person that is most needs to be there? The mother handing over the baby that they know so much better than anybody else. That's so interesting. I used to hate handovers so much, particularly actually the longer we were there when the babies got a little bit more alert because they knew I was leaving and they were like ah. sort of little metronomes and it would get, <laughs> it would get to just before eight o'clock at handover. And Celeste in particular would start crying and I would just have to, on our unit, our unit was wonderful and we had extraordinary care and I'm so, so grateful, as I hope goes without saying, but even if they were roaring, I had to go. And the, I mean, the same thing still happens. I, I know a lot of people are trying to make it possible for parents to be there when there are ward rounds going on. Uh, that's a big contentious issue. We had to, in the hospital where I was working, uh, we had to stop um, asking parents to leave because the parents just, uh, there was a group of parents who put their foot down and said, no, this isn't good enough. Wow. And the doctors then said, well, okay, we'll let's try it another way. And they did. And it was just a, you know, it was just amazing. So it is still an issue. Yeah. Yeah. The separation is still an issue. What are the consequences of that separation? I think it's very complicated. I think that we train parents into a kind of role of being the underdog, sort of being like a pupil, really, you know, that we're the professional authorities and we will decide and tell you. Um, what your baby's telling you, what you're you know, telling everything all the time. So I think it kind of is, is is part of that culture of we being the experts and you being the the pupil or whatever it is who's obliged to do what we what suits us. 
So I think it's part of that culture, and I think that's very bad for parents because um, they don't stand up for themselves then because they're afraid of upsetting people. Um, and then they're afraid if they upset people that people won't look after their after their children properly. And I don't think that happens. You know, people are not ill-intentioned. I don't think that happens at all. People aren't nasty to babies because they've, the parents have been what they will call, in quotes, difficult, um, rather than frightened or anxious or whatever. So I think there's a, it has a lot of um, repercussions for parents, that feeling of being out of control and mm -hmm. not being able to. For the baby, you know, I can tell when I walk onto a unit and look at babies, I know which ones have no contact with their parents just by looking at them. Because you can see they kind of give up. They do notice. It does make a difference to them. They're different when their parents are there. Biologically, it obviously is the wrong thing to do. And it's so difficult to know with each child what, how that affects them in the long run. But we know that stress affects them in the long run, repeated stress. And this is, you know, separation is a pain, is painful. Because that's the thing, isn't it? I think there's this belief that some of the more holistic or the softer emphases are all touchy-feely intangibles, but they're not. There's science behind this. You know, involving parents as much and as soon as possible is neuroprotective. Um, avoiding overstimulation on the wards is neuroprotective. Um, organizing care to protect sleep is neuroprotective. This is not about feelings, it's about outcomes. So why is it that you, that you think you meet um, with resistance on the ward? Because I think I, what you and I were chatting earlier and you said you know, it's not always that easy to persuade um, the NICU staff to make these sort of, you know, these changes. One of the big things that we have to think about is early experience and the effect that has on the brain. And it's very well established now that the kind of experience a baby gets in utero, in a healthy uterine environment, is priming the brain, if you like, and making connections that prepare the baby to deal with the outside world. When term comes and they're born, they're already up and running, they know their mother's voice, they're familiar with her taste and smell, and they're up and running and ready to, to greet the outside world. When a baby is born prematurely, that hasn't happened. And then they're in an environment where, you know, they meet all kinds of stimulation that isn't what they need for that situation. That's really important. But what we've found is that people don't know the science of this. It's, you know, it isn't just a nice idea, but it actually shapes brain connections that are going to last you for the rest of your life. At least we can look at what the baby needs at that particular time, what they're developmentally ready for, and then try to provide that. There are two things I'm thinking is, one, if you have to actually do things to a baby that are difficult to, to do and are often painful and stressful, how do you deal with that? So I think that quite a lot of people deal with that by disassociating, you know, just kind of not noticing or shutting out anything that would make them feel bad about it. And I think it's actually very understandable. Absolutely. Even from the perspective of a parent, of course, they do some of the hardest work in the world. Yes. And how exhausting to feel it every day and to feel the impact 
of the pain that might be in front of you. How yeah. much easier just to say, well, they're sort of pre-babies, aren't they? Yes, they're not they, real babies. Yes. They'll graduate into being, being yes. real babies when I'm finished with them. Mm. Yes, absolutely. I think that that's um, what happens. And sometimes with when we're uh, you know, working with older nurses... And then if we're lucky, they say, you know, this has changed my whole, whole view of things and I should do it differently from now on. But they feel bad when they realise, well, we all do. We've all done things that we've grown out of. And, you know, when I, when I first started and I knew nothing and thought I knew everything, I made myself a black and white apron. So I had big black and white stripes and big black and white blobs. I thought, it'll stimulate the baby's vision. Isn't that clever? And then I went to a conference and there was somebody talking about visual development and I realised, oh dear, this was completely inappropriate. You know, they're not ready for these hyper-stimulating things. They probably <laughs> can't focus anyway. And uh, and also that the babies who tend to get fixed on these bright patterns <laughs> are the ones who are not doing very well. So I then realised I knew nothing, you know. And, you, and then you have to start all over again. So, you know, we've all done it, haven't we, those sort of not realising what we were doing. Lots yeah. of very tripped out babies. <laughs> yes. Well, what they do, of course, if they can't cope is they just shut down and look away. <laughs> but it was certainly a stupid idea. For anyone who's listening who might be at risk of preterm delivery or in the very early stages of their sort of neonatal journey, um, what can they do? The first thing we always say is that, and I think this is the most important thing of all really, is you need to watch your baby. Because... Some parents are too terrified to touch. I mean, it is, I'm sure as you must have found it, absolutely terrifying. Some parents often go through a phase when they just feel too terrified to even touch their baby. And so, but then they say what they really like to do is to watch. I think this is so important because watching is the first job of parents. You know, anybody that's had a baby, you look at them, they're staring at that baby for hours on end. You look at every little crinkle of the brow, every little expression is so vital to tell you who this person is. And that is just as important, if not more so, when your baby is born preterm. So I think it's really important to get across the idea that watching your baby is not doing nothing. That's your job. And I wish I'd done that. I was mm. absolutely... I did not take my eyes off the monitor. That's what ah. I did. I sat in a panic looking over the incubator at that screen, at the saturation numbers. I just... It, I, they were absolutely... I was obsessed with them. Well, mothers often um, tend to look at the baby where fathers tend to look at the Yes, at my the poor monitors. girls had two parents looking at the monitors, <laughs> one looking at each monitor quite often. Well, I wonder if somebody had encouraged you to look at more at them and kind of... I mean, what we encourage people to do is to kind of stand with the parents and to to reflect on what the babies are doing. You know, how do you think they are and what do you think she's telling us and how is she today? You know, that sort of thing to kind of get them focused on this is a little person and yeah. how are they doing today? So I think that's very important. And then I do think that touch is also very important as soon as possible, touch and smell. Uh, one of my uh, colleagues, in, uh, she's a mother in, who organises the training in Hungary, and uh, she was separated from her baby at birth. And when she came up to see him, she went there and she said, um, I need to smell him, then I'll know he's mine. That's the idea, you know, to be able to smell your baby and to touch your baby is so important. And sometimes people need guiding to do that. I think that's what I was going to say, because I have huge respect 
um, or really for that mother that you described because I wouldn't have thought I was allowed to ask and I think one of my biggest regrets of our journey is that I was so I sort of felt like being a good student would get me best marks on it and that was my coping mechanism but it meant that for example when I read about infection control I washed my hands like a lunatic which is good I didn't touch my face I didn't you know I did nothing but I also never kissed them Oh, and I didn't no. kiss them until someone told me I could. And that was five weeks, six weeks. I did not touch my lips to my daughters, and it makes me feel sick when I think about it. I held them. I did everything. I did all the kangaroo care, but I didn't kiss them once because I thought, infection, infection. I mean, it's mad. I know, because you can. You know, they were drinking my milk. They were, <laughs> it was they're my on hands your body. They're, them. Yeah. they're already got most of what you've got Absolutely, anyway. Absolutely, and it yeah. probably would have done them good. I know. Um, but I, I didn't kiss them. No, and I think very few people do. I think that um, the two things, you very seldom see a mother kissing a baby in the neonatal unit. The other thing is even talking to your babies can be difficult in public. What would you, you know, the talking to them the way you would at home or singing or humming? I think people are very inhibited from doing that as well. Well, we're not, the English are not very good in general no. at sort of making a spectacle of themselves. And the no. idea of sitting down and singing mm. into an incubator mm. is just sort of, it's, mm. it's just embarrassing, isn't it? Yeah. So, and it's, so important for babies to hear the voice mm. because, you know, it's partly because it's for, uh, obviously familiar. The voice is your voice is familiar, uh, and they understand that. Um, and it's also because your voice um, kind of regulates their uh, their comfort and their, their stress levels as well because you know the intention in your voice and so on is really important. And that's another thing actually I'd quite like to mention is that telling a baby how you feel as well it's another and it might sound silly but actually it's really quite important you have that emotional connection your baby picks up on it when you start to talk to your baby about how you feel mm. it's it makes sense actually parents actually are very powerful shapers of change your relationships with the other mothers were just absolutely fascinating and your different coping styles. Mm. And I think, you know, you just said that you felt like you needed to be the good pupil or whatever yeah. else, and that resonates with me with what I was saying about us wanting parents to be in that role. But you had one friend who didn't accept that and who uh, kind of stood up for herself. And um, I was thinking if only more people would take a leaf out of her book. Absolutely. When you said, how come she's got a session with the consultants? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else dared to ask for it. But if you don't ask, you don't get. I think, I wonder if it's to do with the extraordinary generosity of the NHS and our sense of that the only thing that it's really seemly to express when an institution has quite literally saved your baby's life is gratitude. Yes. And... I think perhaps that's what it is. There's a sense that it's sort of somehow ungrateful to say, well, but mm. perhaps this could have been better or mm -hmm. I would have felt, you know, more connected to my baby had you, or had you used this language, I might have left that evening feeling better. Or, yes. you know, I wonder if it is just a sense that I would be interested to know whether, you know, in a in a country like America where it is, you, one is sort of more of a consumer in a health system and, my goodness, I'm not advocating for that model, but whether parents perhaps feel more entitled to ask maybe. if they feel something's missing. Yeah, maybe maybe you're right about that. The NHS does do a fantastic job. Absolutely. And, and when you look at, when I look at nurses who are doing 12-hour shifts with a very delicate baby that requires every ounce of their 
energy and attention, but they're also caring for parents who are on the edge as well, mm -hmm. and they're probably not getting any relief from that because they don't get their breaks half the time, and they're always short-staffed and having to do extra shifts. And we talk a lot about this when we're training as well. It's about how do we look after these people that can value what they do because it is amazing what they do. I recently came across a book called The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad That You Did by Philippa Perry. And that was really helpful in making me think about how you can always, um, you know, work on your relationship with your child. You know, because I think it is, you know, I read that book recently. My son said to me, it's a bit late, isn't it? He's 47. <laughs> I said, no, I don't think it is, actually. <laughs> I think I can still learn something from it. So I, th I think that that basic principle of listening to your child and, you know, going and trying to work out what your child is saying to you, you know, between the lines, is it what, what your child means and what your child needs, it goes on being very important. So I think you can catch up. Your relationship with your child and your child's relationships with other people is something that you can always work on. I can't tell you how much I wish I'd known Inga when my girls were in hospital. I would have done so much so differently. I'd have been braver, I think, and the kissing, it makes me want to race to their nursery school and burst in and kiss them now. They'd kill me. I didn't realize that mums are already embarrassing when you're four years old. I thought I had much longer, but it's begun already. Stop singing, mummy. Anyway, I still know that we were lucky and that my girls had incredible hospital care. And a big part of that was support from some amazing nurses who just always seemed to sense when I wanted to be left alone and when I was lonely on the ward and craved a gossip when I needed help, and when I wanted to feel normal by figuring something out for myself. Anyone who has had a baby in special care knows, when you walk in in the morning and see one of your favorite nurses, your heart just lifts. My second guest today is a nurse, and she's a nurse with a unique insight into life on our side of the incubator. Zoe isn't just a cool-headed professional, always calm and cheerful, though she's all of those things. When it comes to prematurity, Zoe is a particular sort of expert. In 2013, Zoe gave birth to her own daughter, Neve, at 28 weeks, two days after a scan revealed no heartbeat. After losing Neve, Zoe went on to have two more children, and both Louis and Daisy spent time in NICU and special care when they were born. Zoe knows better than most how it feels when a birth, when a whole birth story, doesn't go according to plan. I had her on the Sunday. Um, we were allowed to stay on the Sunday night with her. Um, and then we were discharged on the Monday. We were in a postnatal ward. There were crying babies here, there and everywhere. You know, you're not in a, your own little space and stuff like that. So you can hear crying babies. You see term babies coming out the door. And With your NHS hat on, is that something that you can see could be done differently within the reasonable resources that they have? Like, do you think it's necessary that women who have had a stillborn baby need to be listening to crying babies, need to see full term? Yeah, I don't... It's not something that any woman should have to go through. But then I... Per, like, I don't think it's nice for a mum to have to be on the postnatal ward if their baby's in NICU or special care on a ward with, with crying babies no. and stuff, you know? Like, it... 
with my instance, with Louis, for instance, he went to NICU for a few days because he was poorly, but I was on the postnatal ward because I'd had a section. Right. So, so I this couldn't... is Zoe's second Sorry. child, yeah. Louis, who was born <laughs> exactly a year after me. Yeah, right? within five okay. days. He was taken to special care and I was on the postnatal ward again um, in the ward in a cubicle with mums and babies all around. And, you know, like, having gone through having Neve and losing Neve and then having to be in a hospital without my baby again, again you know it was sort of it was awful it was horrible and I don't think any woman should have to you know have to go through that there should be somewhere that if they can't be with their babies that they can at least be private Apart, yeah. you know so they're not listening to other people's babies and I mean it feels like putting you almost anywhere in the hospital like the geriatric ward would be better do you know what I mean? yeah. <laughs> just somewhere yeah, with no true. babies yeah. like there yeah. has to be there are lots of places in hospitals that don't have babies in them yeah definitely um, so yeah, yeah it's hard and then you came back to work which just did. <laughs> <laughs> how did you find the strength to, did you consider doing something totally different, just saying, right, I'm going to go and be a landscape gardener? Uh, yeah, maybe not landscape gardening. I'm very artistic. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I remember saying to Paul um, when I was at home for that time, I don't know whether I can go back. I didn't know what else I could do. You know, I love my job. But yeah, I found so it so hard to see whether I could be have that professional side still when I went in. That was, what I was, that was one thing I really wanted to ask you, was how did you cope with that massive shift in perspective? Because you must have suddenly had, you know, especially in special care when you have babies who are essentially well and ready to go home, and an awful lot of very emotional mums, you know, crying over a blood test. Um, did you find it harder to connect in some ways? I don't think I did. The thing is, <laughs> I, th- I was partly one of those mums when I had Louis. <laughs> <laughs> Because he kept knocking his cannula out and stuff like that. So he had to keep having him reinserted. I remember the midwife coming in to do his um, day five Guthrie test. And she pricked him in the wrong place. And I knew as soon as she'd done it, she'd pricked him in the wrong place. And she was squeezing. And it wasn't bleeding. And he was screaming. And I just remember sitting there, tears in my eyes, thinking, just get off of him. Just leave him alone. Yeah. <laughs> this is a him. little, it's a blood spot for, is it um, cystic fibrosis? Yeah, right it tests for yeah. different things like that. So she managed to get the blood that she managed to get. And I remember her leaving and I said to Paul, that's going to have to be redone. And he said, how do you know? I said, trust me, there's not enough blood on those spots. But I'm not telling her that because she's not doing it again. <laughs> and lo and behold, when we got home, the midwife came round and said, oh, it's got to be redone. And oh, I thought, no. mm, yeah, I thought it would. <laughs> So do you think your professional experience made things harder in some ways? Yeah, definitely. I think it helped Paul relax a lot because if we went in and I said, oh, yeah, the sacks are fine and stuff, he felt a bit more relaxed because I was used to it. But then if things were being done and I saw, you know, like from being in one practice to then being in another hospital and you see the way that they do it. Right, it's it not would, quite what, the way yeah, you would have done it or the way your colleagues would have done exactly, it. Exactly, right. yeah, and you sort of think, okay, <laughs> Fair enough. But, um, yeah, so I do think it's it has good and bad, good and bad effects, I think. What did you learn as a mother that you hadn't known as a nurse? I think to empathise more, to get it. You know, when, when mums don't want to leave their babies or when mums are upset, I, I get why they are like that because I, I've been there. And I can I can say to them, 
I've been there and I, I know what you're going through. Having your baby taken away when you think everything's going to be fine to them not being fine and being poorly, I do understand that and I do get it. So I think that helped a lot, having my having my in special care for a time. So, Not exactly a picnic for you then? No, no, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> How do you think it's changed you as a mother? I shut off a lot in my pregnancies it was a, a means to an end right. I had to, to be pregnant to have a baby yeah. but I can't say I enjoyed it at all <laughs> I mean that just makes perfect sense yeah is there any was there anything that helped I'm just thinking if there's anyone who's listening who's been through something similar um, and is contemplating I mean because getting pregnant again after that must be so frightening and take such a leap of faith Mm. was there anything that helped or it's just you put one foot in front of the other so I think I worked appointment to appointment I got quite poorly in the end as well um I had diabetes in the end I had preeclampsia so in the end I was there weekly so I just got each appointment I worked to that and if I got to that then that was a good thing um were you working all the way through both pregnancies because I think yeah. you said to me before um we started recording that you were pregnant with Louis before you came back to work. Yeah, so, so I had the five months off um, after Neve died. I went back to work in the November and I'd fallen pregnant with Louis at the end of September. Right. So I was about seven or eight weeks when I went Oh, just when you're work. feeling brilliant. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, um, so yeah, I was about seven or eight weeks. It wasn't exactly planned. It wasn't like, let's get pregnant. But... If it happened, it happened, and it did happen. So, but yeah, um, I worked until I think I was about twenty nine weeks with Louis, and about thirty two weeks with Daisy. But it was, it was okay. It was all right. And I think after Neve, everyone else that worked there, especially sort of like the senior nurses, were a lot more observant of me and making sure that I was okay and all of that sort of stuff. So it wasn't wasn't too bad. It was all right. <laughs> I think shift work when you're pregnant anyway is it takes its toll sometimes being on your feet for 12 hours it's just an unbelievably I mean even not pregnant I just sometimes used to look at you guys and just think I just don't know how you do it and I'd yeah. see you know 11 and a half hours into a 12 hour shift and you're still s- skipping basically across the room just on your feet yeah. endlessly it's coffee coffee <laughs> <laughs> it's caffeine <laughs> the magic of caffeine <laughs> um is there anything you'd say to mothers who are listening who are at the beginning of the road that you've walked? Yeah, take in every day as it comes. And if you need to talk to anyone, talk to one of the other mums, talk to, you know, a doctor, anyone. It's better out than in, I would say. I've, I've seen a lot of mums that will sit there on the brink of tears and you'll go over and you're like, are you OK? And they'll nod and they'll look at you and you know they're not OK. You know, but it's until they're ready to to speak up and yeah. want to talk that they will. Just try not to look too far ahead. Take it as it comes, and they do get there. They do. I am so grateful to the National Health Service for catching our babies, for caring for our babies, and for us. It's a monument to means-blind compassion, but it's an institution made up of individuals, and I'm grateful to them beyond measure. 
We heard two really different voices today, but both are NHS workers devoted to nurturing that invisible, living, vital thing, the bond between parents and babies. Our babies should have had their 40 weeks in utero, but since they didn't, Inga and Zoe and countless others are doing their best to make up for what they lost. And I loved what Inga said. It really is never too late to work on that bond, even if your children aren't tiny, even if they're teenagers, even if they're 47. Mothership this podcast about stories that start before the beginning, presented by my mummy. I'm Francesca Siegel, and my book, Mothership, is in bookshops now. If you want to hear even more of my voice, it's even an audiobook. Mothership the Podcast is a Vintage Books production, presented by me, Francesca Siegel, and produced and edited by Lena Norms. Brainstorming and direction by Vicky Spencer. Music is To Clarity by Airy. Thank you for listening, and do come over and follow me on Instagram, at Francesca Siegel, and Vintage Books, at Vintage Books, to continue the conversation. I would really love to hear from you.